0: Brethren, as we have been going through the name of the church, Sovereign Grace Bible Church, we came to the name, the word church, and so we have been going through 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 14 and 15 primarily, in order to discover and discern what it means to be a church. The three key descriptors that we've been studying in 1 Timothy 3.15 are as follows, we Have discovered that we are the household of God, we're the church of the living God, and we're called the pillar and support of the truth. And every one of these descriptors are absolutely important. They help us to understand something about who we are and what our mission is in this life. And so we first of all talked about, we covered the first two, we first of all talked about the implications of our being the household of God. As members of the household of God, we understand that we're members not merely as servants, but we're members by virtue of the fact that we have been made the children of God. So we have this remarkable relationship with him by virtue of adoption. And that helps us to understand our relationship with the Lord himself, but it also helps us to understand our relationship with one another. In other words, we're family now. The implications of this are so deep and broad that we'll carry on and discuss this further at a later time. The second thing that we consider, the second descriptor comes where we're called the church of the living God. And we talked about the word Ecclesia and the idea that this word really denotes the idea of our being called out as an assembly. And who is the one who is calling us out? Well, it's not secular society, governing authorities, the business world or celebrities, whether secular or evangelical. The one who has called us out to assemble as the church is the Lord himself who redeemed us and made us his own possession. And this is why Peter calls us God's own possession. He says that we are a people for God's own possession, that we would proclaim the excellencies of him who has called us. And there he uses the word kaleo, he has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. This is what we get to do. As a church of God, we get to say, listen, we've been called out by Almighty God, and he is the one who has redeemed us, and now we do proclaim his excellencies. He's brought us out of darkness into his marvelous light. This is not our doing, it's his doing. And so we're to be the great boasters of our Lord who has redeemed us. Now, this brings us to the third descriptor found in 1 Timothy 3.15. We're called the pillar and the support of the truth. The pillar and support of the truth. Now, this is a remarkable description by itself, and this is why I wanted to go through every one of them because every one of these descriptors really unpacks for us remarkable truths regarding what it means to be the church. This morning, all we're going to be doing is is we're first of all, we're going to be looking at the words "pillar" and "support," and we need to discern what these words by themselves denote. So that'll be our first point of study here this morning. What do the words "pillar" and "support" denote in this text? Secondly, we need to consider what these words tell us about the church's message and mission. What is the church's message? and mission. Thirdly, and finally, we'll consider the church's model that we have to imitate in in order to be the pillar and support of the truth, and that'll actually bring us into verse 16, which we haven't looked at up to this point, but I would submit to you that verse 16 is basically the presentation by the Apostle Paul to Timothy regarding the model that the church has to imitate in in terms of the great example, the perfect example of godliness that we see in the Lord Jesus Christ. That'll be our concluding point. But let's go to our first point of analysis and consider what the words pillar and support denote. The word for pillar, not pillow, I just said pillow, didn't I? Pillar. (laughs) Pillar is the word sulos, the word support, is edryoma. Now, the word edryoma, the word support, really speaks of the idea of a steady piece of ground. If you're going to build a building on, on top of something, you need to have a steady piece of ground. Sometimes it's used to denote a very, very large rock. The notion of a support in this sense, the, the firm ground or a rock, bears the notion of something that is immovable and steadfast. Paul uses this word frequently metaphorically to speak of the stability and maturity of a child of God. So in 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 58, Paul says, Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast. And here he uses the word adrios. Be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil is not in vain in the Lord. This is talking about a stable Christian who is not getting rocked around all the time and being tossed about by every wind and wave of doctrine in life. But this is someone who is stable, steadfast, immovable in the truth of God. Paul also uses it in Colossians 1.23. He says this, he says, If indeed you continue in the faith firmly established and steadfast and not moved away from the hope of the gospel that you have heard, which was proclaimed in all creation under heaven of which I, Paul, was made a minister. Here again we have the idea of a believer who is solid, who is mature, who is firmly established, and is steadfast, immovable, solid like a rock. You need to have that if you're going to put a pillar on top of that ground. The ground itself has to be stable and immovable, and I would suggest to you that the relationship of the pillar and the support are very important. Stable ground is key, so that the pillar would stand on top of that ground and be immovable and and serve its purpose of supporting the, the larger structure. So the word stulos, which speaks of the idea of a pillar, is used in the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, for the word amud, which comes from the word amad, to stand. And so it really stands to reason, and it's quite clear and obvious, that a speaks of the idea of a column that is used to stand and support something. So pillars, as they were used at the time, could be used for a lot of different things. They could stand up and support a lot of different things. They could sometimes uh, support uh, sculptures or busts. Um, if you had a, a famous uh, general or a senator or even the emperor or even a deity, sometimes they would place that statue on top of a smaller pillar. Sometimes these pillars were used as a platform for votive offerings uh, dedicated to the gods. However, the most common use of a stulos, a pillar at the time, was to support the structure of a building, either a house or, most commonly, a temple of worship. And I would submit to you that this is the most common sense of the notion of a pillar, and this would have been the most common notion of what was being inferred here by the idea of a pillar and a support now I've already said this before and I'll repeat it again Paul is not saying that the truth depends upon the church in the sense of the fact that truth somehow you know is going to either exist or not because of the church that's not the point that's clearly and obviously not the point but there is a practical sense in which we as the church of God are to be those who are the pillar and support of the truth in terms of our proclamation and representation. That is the context of the argument that Paul has been advancing, and I would even submit that the relationship of the, the notion of a pillar and support bears that out. Matthew Henry says this, He says, the church itself is the pillar and ground of the truth, not that the authority of the scriptures depends upon that of the church, as the papists pretend, for truth is the pillar and ground of the church, but the church holds forth the scripture and the doctrine of Christ as the pillar and and support of the truth. So again, we have a practical responsibility to be those who uphold and herald and proclaim and live the truth of God, in our day-to-day life. When you think of this imagery of the church being the pillar and support of the truth, it's really quite striking when you contemplate what this is really conveying. Temples in the first century Greco-Roman world not only had a foundation and not only did they have the pillars that would uphold the roof above it, But between the roof and the pillars was something called a frieze. And there were different variations of temples and different variations about how ornate all of this would be. And uh, really there were classifications of different temples at the time, the Doric, Ionic, and the Corinthian temples. The Corinthian being the most ornate and the Doric being the least. But at the end of the day, they all had something called a frieze. A frieze was simply a series of sculpted figures that typically went all the way around the temple and they communicated and conveyed the mythological story of the deity that was being honored in that particular temple. In the modern day, you drive down the street and you pass by a business and typically a business, they'll put up a sign on the sign of their building, right? Because that business wants you to know what they're all about, what they're selling, and what they're dealing with in terms of their day-to-day business. You see this with cleaners, restaurants, grocery stores. The sign is important because it is telling you about what's going on inside the building. That's kind of the idea of a temple's frieze. Again, the frieze would wrap around all the way around the building, and it had chiseled into it a depiction of the mythology of the very deity that was being worshipped inside. A kind of a summary doctrinal statement, in, in a sense. So, when Paul was in Athens, preaching on the Areopagus, remember that he stood just 500 feet to, to, the, to his east. 500 feet away was the, Acropolis, uh, was the Acropolis, and on top of that was the Parthenon, which was overshadowing the entire city, the Parthenon had a magnificent frieze. we were able to see a reproduction of it, portions of it anyway, when we were in London. And this frieze, of course, of course, uh, unsurprisingly, depicted the historic battles that took place in Athens and the mythology that surrounded their tutelary deity, Athena. And they had an annual festival um, whereby the people of the city would march around all around the city, and the consummation of their festival would be that they would uh, uh, go up the steps of the Acropolis, they would go into the Parthenon, and then they would change the clothing of the statue of Athena uh, to replace the clothing for the festival. That was kind of the climax of the festival. And all of that was depicted on the frieze of the temple. So you had this admixture of theological statements, mythological and theological statements that told you about what was going on inside that temple. But it wasn't just the Parthenon that had this. These friezes adorned temples throughout the Roman Empire, each having their own message of mythological worship and theology. Now, think about this for a second. Paul's writing to Timothy. And where's Timothy? He's in the city of Ephesus. And why is that important? Because Timothy happened to be ministering in a city where they had the largest temple in the world. It was known as one of the seven great wonders of the world at the time. So when Paul went to the city of Ephesus and began preaching the word of God, remember this is all recorded in the book of Acts, Acts chapter 19, where it says, and many of those who practice magic, as Paul was preaching the word of God, many of those who practiced worship brought their books together and began burning them in the sight of all and they counted up the price of them all and found it to be 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of God was growing mightily and prevailing. All these people with all their mythology and all their superstition, they're hearing the gospel and they're chucking and ejecting. Their former manner of life and their ideologies and their mythologies, they're burning it up. And what do you think this is going to do? This is going to cause a great stir in a city where they worshipped Artemis and they were very proud of this. So you read on in the narrative in Acts chapter 19 and it says this and it says, And about that time there arose no small disturbance concerning the way. Luke has a very delicate way of saying there was a big uproar. For a certain man named Demetrius, a silversmith, who made silver shrines of Artemis, was bringing no little business to the craftsmen. These he gathered together with the workmen of similar trades and said, men, you know that our prosperity depends upon this business. And you see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a considerable number of people saying that gods made with hands are no gods at all. And not only is there danger that this trade of ours would fall into disrepute, but also that the temple of our great goddess Artemis be regarded as worthless, and that she whom all of Asia and the world worship should even be dethroned from her magnificence. when they heard this they were filled with rage and began crying out saying great is Artemis of the Ephesians and then as we read on they were further provoked and they carried on for two hours screaming and saying great is Artemis of the Ephesians now Artemis whom the world worships why would they say this Because this temple was one of the seven great wonders of the world. It had a worldwide reputation. People from all over the world would come here to worship Artemis. Antipater of Sidon said this of this great wonder of the world, the temple of Artemis, who after seeing the other six great wonders of the world, he said, when I saw the temple of Artemis, it was mounted to the clouds such that those other marvels lost their brilliancy. All the other six wonders of the world, they just were paled in comparison to this magnificent temple. At 220 feet, 225 feet wide, 450 feet in length, its frieze was uniquely massive. And it bore the message of the exaltation of Artemis. It was upheld by 127 pillars, and there were as many as 52 pillars on its exterior, all upholding that frieze, each of which were 60 feet high really was magnificent as a structure anyway, and its lengthy frieze supplied a seemingly endless rehearsal of the glory of Artemis, the tutelary deity of the city of Ephesus. Again, this was normal in their day. We don't see this like this in in the modern day. But in their day, this was normal. From city to city, temples of worship were everywhere, all having these mythological friezes that wrapped around the, the temples of each city, and all carrying a message of mythology which amounted to nothing but blasphemy against the true living God. Remember last time we went through Jeremiah chapter 10 and The Lord is surveying the fact that there is nothing but idolatry in the world, but the reality is is that there's one true living God, and everything else is idolatry. Well, there's nothing new under the sun. And Timothy was ministering in this city where there was this amazing adoration Worship of Artemis. Imagine being Timothy for a moment. Imagine being this guy. Imagine walking around the city and encountering people from day to day, knowing that these people had the constant indoctrination of the theology and the mythology of Artemis, and it was even broadcasted on this massive building that they saw day in and day out. I would submit to you that the language that Paul uses and the history in which he uses it gives us the analogy and the picture that is really necessary. And it's very clear and obvious. As the church of the living God, we're to be the pillars and the support not of the glory of Athena or the glory of Artemis or Apollo, Zeus, Hermes, or any of the nearly 100 deities and demigods that were found in the first century Roman world. The church of the living God is to be the pillar and the support of nothing but the truth. And mark this, you will know whether or not a church is a genuine church, or not by this determination is it upholding the truth of God or is it upholding something else an amalgamation of some truth and some error or the philosophies of the world in the, in the modern day or the culture itself that's the determining factor as to whether or not you're actually looking at a church it's a powerful image And it really brings us then to our second point. What do these words, the words pillar and support, what do these words tell us about the church's message and mission? Well, as I already indicated to you before, the words themselves give us a sense of the idea of the practical nature of our being invested in the word of God. So the idea of a support, again, it speaks of the idea of stable ground that is immovable And a pillar that therefore rests on that immovable ground and serves its purpose of upholding and proclaiming and broadcasting nothing but truth. You have to have the stability of the believers and the message that they proclaim, the orthopraxy and the orthodoxy going together in order to have the message of Christ be made pure. Anything else becomes a corruption. Think of the language that Paul uses to speak of the idea of the support of the pillar. Again, pillar, support. The the word support that he uses in 1 Corinthians 15, 58, where we're called to be steadfast and immovable. Steadfast and immovable. If you've ever met a person who names the name of Christ, but they're... They're, they're, they're constantly moving around and shifting around, and they don't have any stability in their life. This is not a person who is well-rooted and grounded in the truth of God. And their capacity and ability to be upholders and communicators of truth is affected by their imbalanced life, their inconsistency. Again, these things go together. Having grown up in Southern California, and you can all testify to the same fact, earthquakes are not good to buildings, right? We understand this, right? When you have ground shake, by the way, having lived in the Midwest and the East Coast, it's kind of a funny thing explaining earthquakes to people who really don't know what an earthquake is, but... Uh, You you know, you kind of explain it. I remember um, we were close to the Landers earthquake before we moved to Minnesota. We were like 50 miles away, I think, at the time. And I remember when that earthquake was hitting, it was probably the biggest one we ever experienced. I opened up the front door after trying to get it open. It it wouldn't open because the door uh, frame was shifting so much that it was locked up. Finally, I got the door open. I step outside, and I will tell you this. I've never seen anything like it. But I was able to see down the street from our house, probably about a quarter of a mile, the entire street was doing this, a wave. All the light posts and the houses doing this. This is what instability looks like. Houses don't do well with that kind of instability. Sometimes they fall. For a pillar to do its job, to support the frieze of the building, of the temple, you have to have the stability of the ground upon which the pillar stands and upon which the truth is then lived and proclaimed and declared. Again, I've already said it, and I'm going to repeat it again here. The emphasis of this text is on orthodoxy as it is conjoined with orthopraxy. Our practice and our doctrine, they have to go together. And if you separate these things, you end up with some form of corruption. So that's why Paul said in 1 Timothy 3.14, he said, I'm writing these things to you. In other words, I'm giving you this epistle. I'm writing this letter to you so that you would have the doctrine that you need. Why? So that one would know how they ought to conduct themselves. In the household of God, the things that he wrote were the orthodox doctrines that he needed so that there would be an orthopraxy, a practice of life in the household of God. You have to have both, and if you don't have orthodoxy, you're not gonna have orthopraxy. If you don't have sound doctrine, you're not gonna have a sound conduct of life. In fact, I would say it's really interesting when you think about it. Paul begins and ends this epistle with a warning against those who were teaching in a manner that was contrary to sound doctrine. In the first chapter, he said, As I urge you upon my departure in Macedonia, remain on at Ephesus in order that you may instruct certain men not to teach heterodadascalane. Heterodadascalane. Strange is my translation, strange doctrines. Then at the end, of the, the end of the epistle, in chapter 6, he says, if anyone advocates a heterodidascalé and does not agree with sound words, those of our Lord Jesus Christ, and with the doctrine conforming to godliness, he is conceited and understands nothing. He begins with a warning against heterodox teaching. He ends with a warning against heterodox teaching. That Greek word, that Greek preposition, or prefix rather, excuse me, heteros, we use it oftentimes when we talk about marriage, what are we talking about? We're talking about the attraction, heterosexual or other attraction of a man to his opposite, a woman, right? The man is, is opposite of a woman, despite what people say in the modern day. We, we have men and women and we're different, And it's good because that's the way God made it. So a woman is heteros opposite of a man. Now that's a good thing, but when we talk about doctrine, we talk about sound doctrine. Heterodoxy is that which is other than sound doctrine, orthodoxy. And so in this sense, heterodoxy is a danger to the church. That's why Paul begins and ends his epistle with a warning against embracing or tolerating or even ignoring heterodox teaching. So how do you solve this problem? You solve it by means of the word of God alone. Remember, Paul, writing to Timothy, he's not some old man passing on quaint sayings and traditions and personal opinions and ideas he is writing to Timothy as an apostle of Jesus Christ, as a direct representative of the Lord Jesus Christ, bearing his authority, and he is telling Timothy what they, what he and the church needs to do, and use, he uses the word, remember, the word ought, day, the idea of divine obligation. I'm not making quaint suggestions. This is what you are required to do, in other words. Because if you're going to be the pillar in support of the truth, there is a need to mortify anything that would corrupt that truth. Because once the orthodoxy is corrupted, you have a corrupted orthopraxy. By the way, the, word, the words the truth, sometimes translations either add or remove articles You just have to kind of keep an eye out for these things. The word the, truth, the, the article, it's there in the text, and it's there for a reason. We would call this the monadic article. When we refer to the true and living God, the article is there in order to indicate the monadic nature of his being. How many gods are there? Just one. Just one. How many truths are there? (laughs) There's just one. Again, sanctify them in the truth. Thy word is truth. There's only one God who has revealed his truth. And it is for the church to embrace this Shunning and mortifying all things that would stand to corrupt that truth, so that she would be a pillar and the support of the truth. That's our mission. This is our message. If she doesn't do this, the message will be compromised, the mission will be compromised. And all that we'll do is become a stumbling block. We'll just become a stumbling block in the presence of a watching world. I think in the first sermon on the series of the church, remember I mentioned a Catholic Answers website that pictured a woman who had a fly swatter in her hand and she was trying to kill a fly. And the article was about how to kill Sola Scriptura. It was entitled Sola Scriptura is not so easy to kill. The title in the article really kind of speaks for itself, but when it when you talk about Roman Catholic doctrine, there is essentially an admission that they're not into sola scriptura. They're not into upholding, being the pillar and the support of the truth, but instead they want an amalgamation of the Bible plus other things. And so there is a support of a heterodidascale an addition of other teachings alien teachings that are alien to the word of God alone and so that's why you have the Roman Catholic Church being the pillar and support of auricular confession to an earthly priest rather than to Christ that's why you have the doctrine of purgatory where people are hoping that they can pass from this life suffer some and maybe get to heaven if somebody else prays for them to that end that's why you have a denial of justification by faith alone, a denial of penal substitution, and that's why you have the blasphemous doctrine of the exaltation of Mary as the co-redemptrix along with Christ. When Rome claims that 1 Corinthians 3.15 is their text and that they're the pillars in the support of the truth, they are categorically wrong because what they are supporting is not Truth. And the way that we know this is by the plumb line and measure and standard of God's word. That's it. This is not actually complicated. By the way, this is an apt lesson for Protestant churches as well. Let's not just think that it's an issue that's just for one category like Roman Catholicism. Professing Protestant churches need to be on guard just as well. How often do we see churches adding an admixture of error to the truth by means of church tradition or entertainment or that which is culturally popular or trendy or fashionable? Strangely, we have churches that are now blending the Bible with their doctrine and ideology of social justice and the LGBTQ movement. Even transgenderism is finding its way into the professing church. Those that do this demonstrate by their lack of orthodoxy and orthopraxy that they're not upholding and as pillars and supports of the truth. They're not upholding truth, but they're serving as pillars and supports of error and corruption. Again, Paul's solution to the problem. is orthodoxy, sound doctrine. And so that's why he began with warning Timothy concerning the dangers of false teachers. That's why he taught in chapter 2 that men need to be leaders in the local church, and they must not let down their responsibility in so doing. That's why he went through the qualifications of elders and deacons in chapter 3. That's why he calls uh, for the rejection and mortification of worldly fables. In the fourth chapter, Uh, chapter 5, he talks about the need for compassion, ministries of compassion to widows, and the ministry that is to be had regarding the the teaching elder. He talks about in chapter 6, servants and masters, the need for sound doctrine, the danger of controversial questions and disputes, and warns against those who love money. All this doctrine is necessary to have a sound orthopraxy so that we would be the pillar and support of the truth but once you corrupt the doctrine you corrupt the practice and once the foundation the support starts to shake the pillar even if you're repeating the words it starts to crumble And suddenly the message that is being upheld is not even distinguishable as a biblical message anymore. The words pillar and support are important. They had a lot of importance in the day of the writing of this epistle. Their meaning remind us that as a church we're to be the pillars in support of the truth, knowing that the very message that sits right atop that pillar needs to be nothing but the truth not an amalgamation of other messages. And then to cap this study, this teaching off, Paul gives us, and this is our third point, Paul gives us the church's model to imitate. We want to ask the question, who do we imitate? What what is our model? What is our example? If we're going to be the pillars in support of the truth, what's the, the model and example that sits before us? It's the Lord Jesus Christ. And so in verse 16, he says, And by common confession, great is the mystery of godliness. He who was revealed in the flesh was vindicated in the spirit, beheld by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed in the world, taken up in glory. Who's our great model? It's the Lord Himself, it's the Lord Jesus Christ. What does he mean when he talks about the mystery of godliness? The word godliness there is the word eusebeus from the word sebamai contraction of two words eu and sebamai good conduct godly conduct piety we would say Here's the symmetry of these arguments We look at Jesus who is the the mystery of godliness the fulfillment of true godliness perfect godliness And here we are called upon to conduct ourselves within the household of God in a manner that is godly. So how do we do that? Who's our example? Who's our model? It's the Lord Jesus Christ. William Hedrickson, in his commentary, is right to point out that the mystery of godliness points us to the perfect example of Christ, whose message and mission was infallible such that we have no greater model than him. And why does Paul use the word mystery? Well, because Paul uses the word mystery frequently to speak of the fact that Christ, now that Christ has appeared, now that he came in the flesh, now that he was manifested among men, proclaimed the truth among men, died on the cross, rose again, now that he has demonstrated perfection to all, that he is, in fact, the only and great example before us, we now see in him that the mystery that was one time, at one time veiled is now fully revealed. And so he says in Ephesians chapter 3, That he as an apostle was called to bring to light what is the administration of the mystery which for ages had been hidden in God who created all things in order that the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known through the church to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was in accordance with the eternal purpose which he carried out in Christ Jesus our Lord. The beauty and glory of Christ that was seen amidst the shadows of the Old Testament has now been fully displayed. And it's our privilege to carry on the message of Christ and display his glory through the message proclaimed and the message lived. We're to be carriers of his message as the pillars and the pillar and support of his truth. And so Hendrickson then says and suggests that these pillars of the church, they rise not only to the earthly authorities to proclaim Christ's glory, but even to the heights of heavenly places in order to declare the glory of our Redeemer. Brethren, that's our mission. That's what we're called to do. To be pleasing to him by heralding his truth, for there is no other truth plain and simple. You have an insert in your bulletin, the hymn, the church, the pillar and support of the truth. Verse three really is what we've been studying this morning. Not only does the hymn remind us of the fact that we're the household of God, verse 1, and the church of the living God, verse 2, but verse 3 reminds us of the fact that we are to stand as the pillar in support of the truth. So it says, O oh, may your church stand firm and strong upon your word where we do belong, the pillar of your truth we must be, that through the church your glory may be seen. And then we have the example of Christ in the per- perfection of his piety and godliness. Verse 4 says this, this, great mystery of godliness we see in him who came in the flesh. He died and then rose up from the grave. Our risen king, the angels, all praise. May Christ be proclaimed throughout this world. Oh trust in him, believe in his word. In glory now our Savior abides and someday soon... He'll come for his bride. He who was revealed in the flesh was vindicated in the spirit, beheld by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. This is the one whom we serve. It is Christ that we follow, it is his example of piety and godliness that is our example. I have to say, as I said earlier, I've struggled with my sense of selfishness of saying goodbye to David. The two times, brethren, that I visited him in the hospital when he was at Torrance, um, (laughs) you know what he was doing. Do I need to even tell you what he was doing? I don't even need to tell you what he was doing. You know what he was doing? Laying down in that hospital bed, he was being a pillar and support of the truth. Witnessing to the nurses, telling the doctor of his love for Christ, telling them where he was going. Brethren, this is our mission. This is our message. And I say to you that what David was doing, even on his deathbed, is he was emulating the beauty and the glory of Christ. That's what we're called to do. So let's stand together. Let's sing this hymn. I'm going to ask uh, Karen if you could play through the entire um, hymn so we can hear Let's stand together.
1: great mystery of godliness we see proclaimed throughout this world. Oh, trust in him, believe in his word. In glory now our Savior abides, and someday soon he'll come for his
0: Precious Heavenly Father, the things that we have been learning together in this text are—they're deep, they're beautiful, they're profound. And we confess that in our frailty and weakness, we need Your grace. We need grace to be pillars in support of the truth. Lord, you've given us Your word. We know the message. We know where to go to be sanctified as we are called upon to be sanctified in truth thy word is truth so lord we pray that you would mature us and make us a people who are steadfast immovable always abounding in the work of the lord that we would proclaim the truth of your word and do so with lives that are being transformed by your glory father what a great privilege it is to be your church in the midst of this dark and perverse generation or there are many temples of worship that surround us many ideologies and many various religions but we pray that we would be dedicated to heralding nothing but your truth and your truth alone so again we ask for grace to do this for your namesake and glory and we ask it in the fair and precious name of the lord jesus christ amen